the passage which Ricky read just a moment ago. Genesis 50. Let's pray. Father God, we were thinking this morning in our time together of some of the habits and patterns of Jesus' life. And one of those that that we noticed and were drawn to was his knowledge of your word. Uh, As a young boy in the synagogue, Jesus would have been taught uh, the Torah, your law. As a man in public ministry, Jesus was able to turn his mind and his heart to the things of your word at will because he had dwelt on your word and meditated on it. Lord, as we learn to follow your son, Jesus, make us like him in this regard. People who know your word, who are shaped by it, who see the world through the the biblical worldview. And we pray that as we come to spend even just a few minutes with your word this evening, that you'd make it clear to us uh, and that you'd impress uh, your message on our hearts this evening. Amen. Tonight, as we come to the end of our studies in the life of Joseph, we come to the end at the same time of the whole book of Genesis. And I think that's a pretty good achievement for any of you who have been here with us for most of that. That's a 50-chapter book that we have worked our way through, uh, I think it's in the last three years. Three years ago, we began with a morning series in the first 11 chapters of the Bible, where we learned there of how God created the earth And we learned of some of the early dealings of God with his people and how he made them in his image to display his glory, but how quickly they fell from that wonderful calling. And then we followed that up not long after with a a series in the life of Abraham, where we, we looked at that period where God called a family of people. And he said, Abraham, through you and your descendants, I will bless the world So that was a second series. And in a third series, we looked at God's dealing with Abraham's uh, son, Isaac. uh, Sorry, with with Isaac and then his grandson, Jacob, that made up a a third series. And I think that wasn't long ago, actually. I think that was maybe the springtime of this year. And now this autumn, we have been looking together at at the final part of the book of Genesis, a series on the life of Jacob's family, and particularly his son Joseph. I don't know if you gathered it as we read chapter 50, if you sensed it, but this is the end of an era that we've come to now at the end of the book of Genesis. God has established Abram's family, that family that he chose three generations ago. There are now 70 or more of them by this stage, Uh, They're living not anymore in Canaan. God brought them out of the the moral malaise uh, of Canaan and into a a safer place in Goshen in Egypt. Over the next years, they're going to go stronger here. They're going to grow an identity as the people of God. And whenever we next meet them, 
just over the next page in the opening chapters of the book of Exodus, by that stage there'll be a huge nation of people. There'll be slaves oppressed and they'll be waiting for God's salvation. And maybe we'll get a chance to, to look at that story, the, the story of the book of, Gen- of Exodus, sometime quite soon. But for now, as I said, we're going to spend a few minutes just this evening bringing our time in Genesis to a close. The final, chap- the final verses of chapter 49 tell us of Jacob's death. Now, if you were here with us last week, you'll know that we had gathered around his deathbed. You'll remember we had listened to the blessings that he gave first on his grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And then in chapter 49, the, the prophecies are the blessings that old Jacob spoke over his own sons. But by the time we get to the end of the chapter, after he's, he's given out all these blessings, with his final breath, Jacob tells his sons one last time to bury him in Canaan. Bury me with Abram and Sarah with Isaac and Rebekah, with my own wife Leah. And Jacob's last words, they just declare his dying commitment to God. Take me back to Canaan. I'm a Canaan man. And in the opening verses then of chapter 50, we're told that Jacob's sons, they they obeyed his instructions. They buried him in Canaan just as he had said. It's quite interesting to notice there that he was embalmed. He was mourned, according to the Egyptian custom. And that shouldn't really surprise us. By this stage, he's been in Egypt for 17 years. So Jacob's family have begun to to take on much of the culture of Egypt. And then we read that Pharaoh allows Joseph to take a leave of absence and to make the journey north. In verses 7 to 9 there, we see that all of Pharaoh's officials accompanied him. It was a very large party. I think this is one of those moments that's hard to imagine. Here you have old Jacob, who's just died, a humble shepherd, his hillbilly family of, I don't know, are they a hundred or so by now, maybe a bit more? So it's these crusty Canaanite shepherds on the one hand and then all the might of Egypt with all their pomp and ceremony accompanying them I think it would have been an interesting parade to watch as it passed but it's a profound moment too because old Jacob here is making a last journey that has a real symbolic power. One day, and it would be 400 years later, before his descendants would once more make this journey. The descendants of Jacob, or the children of Israel as they'd come to be known, they'd make an exodus out of Egypt up to Canaan. I want to jump quickly to the last verses of the chapter, and we'll finish actually in the middle somewhere. I want to look at Joseph's death with you. We're told in verse 22 that he lived out a long life in Egypt, that he had children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren placed on his knee. And in verse 24, we read Joseph's last words. I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. 
And we read there as well of his last request, although we're not given the wording, we're, we're told of the content. He made his brothers promise that they'd take his remains with them to Canaan whenever the time came for God's people to return. Do you see what Joseph's saying here? He's following exactly in the footsteps of his father Jacob. How long has Joseph lived in Egypt by this stage? It's at least 90 years. He left Canaan as a 17-year-old, and now he's lived over 90 years in Egypt. But even after 90 years in this place, he still knows where his loyalties lie. Even after enjoying, and we've talked about this a few times, all the power that Egypt has to offer, the wealth that, that an empire would have to offer, this old man now remembers to whom he belongs Nothing, in the end, nothing has distracted him. Nothing has sidetracked him. Nothing's deterred him from finishing well. He has his heart set on God and on resting in the land God has promised his people. We talked about this last week, and I'm not going to dwell on it this week. But I'm sure, like me, that you're struck by, by the deaths of these old men, Jacob first and then Joseph. They, they seem to finish so well. The Spirit of God seems to be as much, if not more, at work in their lives at the end as he was on, on the way. And I said to you last week, I, I pray that when my time comes, I'll finish well like these men did. And I pray that for you too. We're going to spend the remainder of our time, and this is really where our focus is going to fall this evening, on the interaction between Joseph and his brothers recorded for us in verses 15 to 21. Have a look at those verses there. It comes, I think, as something of a disappointment when we read in verse 15 how the brothers respond when they hear the news of their father's death. They're asking themselves, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs that we did to him? They're afraid that now that their their father has died, that Joseph's finally going to come and get them. And I think that, that would have been a very real fear. I think in the culture where there would have been such a respect for the father of a family, There's a sense in which when the father dies, everything changes. And by normal circumstances, they probably had every right to be afraid. But here they are, fearful. So they hatch a plot and they send a messenger to Joseph and they pass on Jacob's deathbed plea. Now this is a wee bit ambiguous. We don't know if they made this up. I get the sense reading it that they probably did. We don't know whether Jacob ever said anything along these lines. But anyway, the, the brothers take this message to Joseph and they said, Joseph, you need to hear what our dad said. These are his dying words. He said, I ask you to forgive the sins and wrongs they have committed in treating you so badly. When Joseph hears the message, he weeps. After all these years... 
of his brothers living under his protection, they're still afraid. After all these years of enjoying his hospitality, they still don't trust him. Now we have noticed before in this Joseph narrative, there are times when when Joseph stands as a type of Christ. I think it came through probably most powerfully in the scene where Joseph was reconciled with his brothers. Despite all the wrong that they had done to him, Joseph forgave them. Despite their violence against him, he called them close and he embraced them, every one of them. We noticed before how at times Joseph seems to stand as a type of Christ in these narratives. Well, I suspect that here, as he weeps over these untrusting brothers, Joseph stands once more as a type of Christ. Surely, surely it breaks the heart of Jesus when we don't respond to his love, declared, demonstrated time and time again to us. There might be some here this evening who have heard the call of the gospel many, many times, who have known for years and over and over again of the kindness and the grace of God. I wonder, is the, the heart of Jesus breaking as he looks on a gathering like this and sees those who haven't yet responded to his love? If the heart of God responds for those who have never responded to his love, I think it, I think it breaks maybe too for those who have known his love but who don't yet fully trust him. I think that's actually where these brothers are. They've been forgiven. They've seen the love of their brother Joseph, but still, when push comes to shove, they don't trust him. I wonder, Christian brothers and sisters here this evening, those of us who've known the the wonderful joy of being reconciled to God, those who have known what it is to be forgiven, have we learned to fully trust God? Or are we still afraid of Him? Are there times in our lives and circumstances which cause us just to be afraid that God's going to do something in, in a way that, that wouldn't be for our best? Maybe it's in our relationships. Maybe we don't trust that God wants our best in our relationships. The people whom we love and the people whom we wish would love us. Do we trust God with that? Do we trust God with our work? Whether or not we have work at the moment or whether the work that we have is, is the right work for us to have. Do we trust and believe that God has our best interest at heart there? What about our health? Are we trusting God with our bodies? That what's happening in them is, is something that he knows and cares deeply about? 
Friends, I think it's possible after years of following Jesus Christ that we still doubt God, that we still doubt that he wants the very, very, very best for us, that no dream that we have for ourselves is better or even comes close to what he wants for us. I wonder, do we still doubt him? Do we still hold back? And I'm sure that it's possible that we do and and probably even likely that, that many of us do. We struggle to fully trust God. Do you want to bring joy to your father's heart this evening? I think this is it. I think this is what God longs for from us. God is like a father with his children gathered around him. And the things that brings him a joy and and warmth in his heart is our trust. It's when we just come to him ready for whatever it is that he would give us. Knowing that that's our best. Trust him with everything. With your all. Trust him with your life. Hold nothing back. I think the the words of Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, they they ring down to us through the centuries, uh, to those of us who follow Jesus today. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. When the brothers finally come before Joseph, they're all in a state But he receives them. He receives them warmly and he says, do not be afraid. And then he gives them his perspective on his whole life. If you're looking for a summary of the life of Joseph, we have it here. He speaks of their ill treatment of him all those years ago. He's thinking of all the consequences. Uh, That time in prison, that time when, when Potiphar's wife uh, abused him and, uh, and falsely accused him that time in prison. He's thinking of all that, that happened in those early days in his life. And he says, you intended to harm me. But God intended it for good. He's not glossing over it here. He says, fellas, what you did was real. You really did sin against me. And I haven't forgotten it. At least not in the, the sense of the facts of the case. That happened. It really did. And it was a terrible thing. I haven't forgotten it, but I've seen God now in it. You see, fellas, God is bigger than even your sin. God can take the worst of circumstances and he can work his salvation even through those circumstances. Do you see here a final, and with this we close, a final and glorious foreshadowing of the gospel? Do you see a a foreshadowing of Jesus? He too was ill-treated. The lash of the whip on his back, the thorns on his head, the spit on his cheek and the bruises on his face, the spear plunged into his side, the scorn 
of the Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers, the betrayal of his disciples. Jesus suffered terribly. Friends, there's no greater sin, I don't think, than to to hate and to kill the Son of God. There's no greater suffering, surely, than what Jesus experienced. I'm not talking about the intensity of the physical suffering. I'm talking about his innocence. I'm talking about his total unworthiness to know any pain or hurt or wrong, and yet he suffered terribly. Whenever Jesus hung on the cross, human life reached rock bottom. We killed God. We'll never do worse than this. And yet the quite staggering truth is that God was in it. That God was working through these awful circumstances. That he took the suffering of his dear son and that he worked it for good. The prophet Isaiah had told us the good that would come of it all. He said it was the will of the Lord to crush him. By his stripes were healed. Friends, the cross teaches us that there is no sin so bad that God can't redeem it. And maybe that's an important thing for someone here this evening to hear. Maybe your life has slipped into the lowest of the low. Maybe you're slopping about in the mire and no one else knows it. Maybe you need to hear about the evil that killed Jesus to be reminded of the evil in your own life this evening because you're, you're blind to it yourself. Friends, we can't come to the cross and we can't come to this communion table without being reminded of the evil that's in our own hearts. In a moment when we gather around this table, we'll remember Jesus. We'll remember how he was harmed. And we'll remember how we have played our part in this. And we'll remember too how God has worked all of this for good. Do you see what Joseph said? God has intended this for good for the saving of life. For the saving of our lives. When we come here, we'll remember our salvation. Come, acknowledging your sin. Come remembering that he was crushed for you. Come remembering that it was for your sins that he died. But then listen. As he says, you intended to harm me, but God meant it for good. 
Listen to him as he says, don't be afraid. Come close. Do this in remembrance of me. Just before we do come and gather around the table, we're going to sing together. It's a communion hymn that we've learned recently here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. Behold the Lamb. Uh, let's, let's stand this time as we sing.
please be seated. We are here because Jesus has invited us. When Jesus was on earth, he often enjoyed meals with his friends. On the night before he died, when darkness was beginning to fall, he sat at a table with his disciples in an upper room in Jerusalem. And at that last supper, he took bread and wine and he told his disciples to remember him by following his example. This evening, we are his disciples. And we're glad to do what he has told us to do. Let us pray. Loving God, you made this marvelous world for us to enjoy. You give us Jesus to be our friend and to bring us to you. You send your spirit to make us one in your family. Father God, we thank you for these gifts of your love. We thank you that you showed your love by sending your son to give his life for us. We thank you that he rose again from death and that he lives to pray for us forever. Father God, we thank you that Jesus has taken away all that separates us from you. That he's made us your friends again and friends with one another. We thank you that he's brought us to this table to be strengthened as we remember his dying, his rising, and his incredible love for us. Send your Holy Spirit on us and on these gifts of bread and wine that we might know the presence of Jesus, real and true. By your Spirit, Make us to be as faithful followers, showing your love for this world. Amen.